All right. Thank you, sir. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 2. If you can flip over there. We're going to be looking at the, um, the second letter that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. This is going to be Smyrna. Uh, Pastor David got us started last week with the first letter to Ephesus. And, and just as a reminder, these are real churches that existed in a real place at a real time. In Asia Minor is where they were, which is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, the reason I point that out is because some people interpret these letters to be different ages throughout church history. So, for instance, uh, Ephesus would be the current church that John was writing to, and then Smyrna would be a few years later, uh, the 300 to 500 range, and then the, the next letter would be all the way down to Laodicea, which is the last church. And, and the truth is there may be some truth to that. Uh, there may be some generalities that work, but... I think it makes more sense to treat all of these letters as though they apply to all churches throughout all time. And the reason I think that is because these seven churches existed in close proximity to each other. There was a, you would just kind of go in a, almost a horseshoe shape and you'll, you'll just track with them. They were all right there. And yet they all received very different letters. It would be kind of the same right now if, if Jesus were to come to Lapine and write letters to all the different churches in Lapine, would he write one letter for this age and hand it to the churches and say, that fits everybody? I don't think so. I think that he would say something different to us than he might say to the church over there and over here. And then to compound that even further, if, if Jesus were to write a letter today to the church in America and the church in China, they'd be very different, wouldn't they? And, and so... I don't, don't do that thing that we do where we say, okay, he's, you know, I'll pick the letter that I like the best. Philadelphia is usually the one we like the best because he says nice things and say, we're Philadelphia and, and we don't have to pay attention to those other churches. Now, it's a good thing for us to, to think about every one of these churches and what Jesus said because it meant something to him to write these things. And we get an idea of what matters to him. Uh, what, what do we need to reinforce that we're doing? What do we need to change? What do, what do we need to repent from? All of these things we need to consider. We also need to understand that this meant something for that church right then and there, and we need to uncover that so that we can have a better understanding of what it means for us, and that's what we're going to do today. As we read through the, the letter to Smyrna, it might become clear that we may not have a whole bunch in common with them, um, but still need to dig in, still need to glean what we can, because the truth is, if things kind of keep going the way that they're going, we might have more in common with them soon than we think we would. I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> As we read through, you'll, you'll see what I mean, but we need to be ready for that possibility. Smyrna is the shortest letter, which I got the shortest letter, which I like. Uh, they also got an A on their report card from Jesus. I don't know if Chad, you know, I, I told Chad we need to work on these letters because Smyrna got it, it should be an A for sure. Sardis is an F for sure. So. But the comments are kind of funny. I, I actually went back to some of my old report cards, and not the good comments, but the bad comments came from some of my actual report cards. Pretty funny. Conferences needed. That was one. Um, they were, uh, these guys were a pleasure to have in class. Remember getting that on your report card? <laughs> I used to see other people's report card that would say that. I was the one that wasted class time and was disruptive. Smyrna was a pleasure to have in class. Uh, they're one of only two churches that Jesus didn't reprimand or tell them to repent of anything. The other one is Philadelphia. So we're going to go ahead and read our text, and then we're going we're to dig into this letter. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, says, And to the angel 
of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but are not, they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, the letter starts out to the angel in the church of Smyrna. And as David mentioned last week, uh, this word angel can also be translated messenger. Now, it's possible that an angel got the letter from John, delivered it to the church, and read it. I don't know. I mean, it'd be kind of cool for an angel to come in and read a letter. It'd also be kind of terrifying. I don't know if I'd even listen to it. I would just be like, usually there was knees knocking when angels were around. So the truth is angels are God's messengers. But this could just mean the guy that got the letter from John brought it to the church and read it, the courier. It could mean the elders of the church that got the letter and read it. Uh, We don't know. Knock yourselves out, study it out, but messenger is, is probably what it is. So what do we know about Smyrna? Uh, This town is the only city of the seven that uh, still exists today. The rest are just ruins, and it's now called Izmir in Turkey. The name Smyrna has its origins with the word myrrh. If you remember, what did the wise men bring Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So Smyrna, that's where it comes from. They they would get this sap-like resin out of a, I think it was called the Kamaphora tree. I don't know if I'm saying that right, because I stink at horticulture and all that. Uh, They would extract this liquid, they would let it harden, and then they would grind it into powder, and they would make medicine with it, and they would make perfume with it. They would export a lot of it to all kinds of places in the world, especially Egypt, where embalming and burial was, um, you know, they needed a lot of it for that. Uh, A guy named Joe Stoll put out a a series on the seven letters on YouTube, and, and I borrowed heavily from that. One of the things he points out is that myrrh was brought by the wise men, when Jesus was born, and myrrh was also used when Jesus died to to prepare him for burial, and that most likely came from this place, Smyrna. At the time this letter was written, Smyrna was estimated to be a pretty big place, about 200,000 people. It was a thriving port city in in the Roman Empire, but that wasn't always the case. In in 600 BC, the, the city was actually destroyed leveled and and almost made nothing. But then Alexander the Great, in around 340 BC, had this vision to rebuild this city. And what this caused was the people of Smyrna now, you know, some 500 years later, 600 years later, they had great pride in the fact that they were the city that was dead, but had now come to life, right? And they had things like this written all throughout the city, these reminders of of this resurrected city that they were. They'd also vied for and won the title of First of Asia. There was a competition apparently between the different cities around the area. Ephesus was one of them, and that was a big one. But these guys won the title First of Asia, and that was a big deal to them too. They put it on their coins. They were very proud of that. So we're the city that was dead but is now alive. We're the city that's the first in Asia. Those were their boasts. Well, it's not a coincidence that Jesus begins his letter by straightening them out a little bit, by saying that, no, I I am the first and the last. I am the one who died and came to life. 
He's putting these people in their place and reminding his followers of who those titles actually belong to. I think it's kind of funny. Oh, you think you're the first of Asia? Oh, that's cute. No, I'm, I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the one that gets the final say in all of these things. And by saying what Jesus said, he's also claiming that he is, was, and always will be God. Because the title first and last, sometimes it's the alpha and the omega. Sometimes it's the beginning and the end. They all, they all are phrases that everybody understands. Everybody, even those that deny the, the deity of Jesus, they understand those phrases and what they mean. That's reserved for God alone. He's the first and the last. But then Jesus goes on to say, I died and I came to life. So what that tells us is the one who had no beginning and no end died and came back to life, the first and the last. That's definitely referring to Jesus, which also means that Jesus is definitely God. It's a claim that he made, no question about it. And eternally God, not somebody who became God, always was, first, last. Okay, so that's how Jesus introduces himself to them. And then in verse nine, he gets into the body of the letter. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those that say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Ouch, those are fighting words. Uh, this church had been facing heavy persecution, and Jesus wants him to know that he's aware of it. So he says, I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. Chapter one tells us that Jesus, uh, he's in the midst of his churches, that he walks among the lampstands. He's, he's acquainted with everything that goes on in the church. The church is precious to him, and, and he knows what's going on in them. And that gives me a lot of comfort to know how intimately he, he is involved with his churches then and still now. And it would have meant a lot to them as well because of everything they were going through. Again, this guy Joe Stoll points out that the, the word tribulation, it comes from an ancient form of tor torture where they would, they would spread a person out on their back and they would begin to add weights to their chest, one after another, after another, until you couldn't breathe and would suffocate. That's what this word tribulation means. So Jesus is saying, I, I know the weight that's being put on you, and I know how hard it is. There were three weights of tribulation being placed upon their chest, according to this letter, poverty, slander, and then the fear of imprisonment slash death. Those are some heavy weights. The first weight of tribulation these Christians felt was just pressing down on them was poverty. And you have to ask the question, why were these Christians so poor when they lived in the first of Asia, this, this affluent city? Why were they poor? Well, one of the reasons was because they chose to remain loyal to God in a place that was famous for emperor worship. Back in, in 195 BC, Smyrna had this great idea. They were the first city to build a temple to Rome. Now, there were all kinds of temples. There was, you know, you had temples to Diana, you had temples to all these different people. But they said, hey, let's build one to Rome to celebrate the spirit of Rome. And, and it began as kind of a way to honor all that Rome was and honor the leaders, guys like Julius Caesar. So that's why we'll build it. But by the time this letter was written, that had all changed. And now it, it was actually full-blown emperor worship is what was going on here. And Domitian, the guy who was the emperor now, he really liked that. He liked the idea of, you know, Worship me. Call me God. That was a big deal. So once a year, Roman citizens were required to burn a pinch of incense on the altar of the god Caesar. 
right? You would be then given a certificate to prove that you had performed your religious duty and promised your allegiance to the emperor. Now, that wouldn't have been a big deal to the people of Smyrna because they, you know, the more gods, the merrier was kind of their motto. It's like, where do I sign? Where do I throw the incense? It's like, oh, one more god, what's the big deal? But what if you were a Christian? What if you were a Christian and you were told, you have to do this or you don't get the certificate? By the way, I don't have this in my sermon, but a lot of people ask these days, you know, could, could this be the mark of the beast? Could that be the mark of the beast? What about, you know, if I get the vaccine, if I accidentally take in the mark of the beast? I'm not saying take it or don't take it. I'm saying that the mark of the beast is going to look a whole lot more like this. You're not going to accidentally take it. You know, don't, don't, I, so many people think, you know, like you're going to trip and be like, oh, I took, you know, uh, no. Like they mail you your license plate and it says 666 and you're like, did I just, you know, no, that's not, it's going to look a lot more like this. If you were a Christian and you didn't participate in this at that time, you, you had drawn a line that separated you from everybody else. And they, they didn't like that. That was a huge insult to the people of the city. It was a huge insult to the, govern, to the government. And, and it basically just meant that nobody was going to hire you and nobody was going to do business with you. You were marked as the problem. So even though Smyrna was a thriving and prosperous city, if you were a Christian, you were excluded from all of it. And the word poor that Jesus uses here, it doesn't mean like, you know, I'm having a hard time keeping a budget or making ends meet. It means abject poverty. They had nothing. Now, interestingly, you would think that the Jewish people would have been in the same boat as the Christians because they are also people who only believe in one God. They're monotheistic as opposed to polytheistic, which the Romans believed in lots of gods. So, so why weren't they being put in the same spot as the Christians? Well, it's because they'd been officially recognized by Rome as a legitimate religion for so long that they were kind of grandfathered in. And they really didn't cause a lot of problems for the Romans. They were just kind of understood that, yeah, they're weird. They're over here. They're doing their thing. But leave them alone. So you can understand why they would now have a problem with Christians who, who are also one God people because this could mess everything up for them. If these guys, you know, if we don't make a real clear separation and distinctum from these weirdos, this is going to come back to bite us. And that's the second weight that comes in on the chest of the Christian was slander. Uh, the Jews, we, we knew that they, are, they already liked, the, you know, disliked Christians, but it was for religious reasons. And you're not going to get the Romans on board with that. We see that in the book of Acts over and over again when they would have trials and they'd be like, what's the beef? Well, it has to do with our law and whether or not Jesus is Messiah. And the Romans would be like, we don't care. You figure it out yourself. That doesn't... So they have to find something that the Romans will care about. And this spirit, by the way, is still alive and well. If you want to take down your enemy, make them out to be dangerous. Spread as many falsehoods as you can about them and, and get people to turn against them. We see this on both political sides of the fence. We see this in the media. We see this on Facebook. It, it's, it's disgusting, but it still happens today. The Jews made up lies about the Christians so that the people of Smyrna would despise them. And, and if you think about what the Christian church was like at this time, think like Acts chapter 2, Christians would engage in... in you know, these communal fellowship type meals together where they would spend time together in each other's homes. They would break bread together. They would pray. Uh, they would have uh, communion. So they were called agape feasts or love feasts. And, and then they would also have communion, which is a remembrance of the body and blood of Christ. That was all true. What the Jews did is they said, oh no, these Christians, 
They're taking part in orgies, you know, love feasts, right? Orgies. They're cannibals. They're eating the body and the blood of people. That's what these Christians are like. And not only that, they hate family. They, they, they prefer each other to their family members. They leave, they, they leave mother and father, brother and sister, and they prefer others to the family. They hate the family unit. Ugh. See what they've done? And the Romans didn't like any of that. They were big on family. They were big on some of the other things too, but they didn't like what was being said about these guys. So, so the, the Jews were playing dirty here. And this is why Jesus uses such harsh language that, that they're, they're the synagogue of Satan. They say they're my people. They're not my people. They say they go to my church. They go to Satan's church. That's what Jesus says. That's harsh. And it reminds me of what, what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, 44. You know, they're saying, God is our father. And he said, no, I know your father. <laughs> your father is the devil, and you're just like him. And the things that he pointed out, the reason he said he was, they were just like their father, the devil, was because they lied and they murdered. Well, guess what these guys are doing in Smyrna? They're slandering the Christians, and they're seeing to it that they're going to end up killed because of it. So they are like their father, the devil, it would appear. So the Christians in the city were seen as a problem to get rid of. And that's exactly what happened. The third weight of tribulation is spelled out in verse 10. Jesus says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, prison at that time was nothing like what our prisons are today. You need to think dungeon. That's what they were like. And they weren't meant to rehabilitate people. The reason you went to prison was either to coerce you into changing your behavior, like now, for the Christian, curse God and we'll let you out, or they would hold you for trial or death. That's all the prisons were for. The text tells us that the devil is responsible for putting them in prison, and we know what he hopes to accomplish through it. He wants to see them curse God, or he wants to see them snuffed out. Now, this is where it gets a little weird. Notice that even though these Christians were facing abject poverty, vicious slander, imprisonment, and death, Jesus doesn't immediately jump in to help them. Yet, he acknowledges all those things are real, but he's not doing anything about it, it seems. A day is coming when all that changes, when our salvation is fully realized, where Jesus does come in and save the day, but suffering may be part of our lives until that time. And this is a foreign concept to many Christians today, especially Christians in America. We, we haven't had to deal with this, but this has been the norm for churches throughout most of history. This has been the norm for Christians throughout most of history. And I don't say that to depress you or to alarm you even, but, but to prepare you for the possibility. We would be horrible pastors if we didn't at least tell you that this is, this is generally something that you, you should expect. And, and there's people out there right now going, what about my best life now? I read the book. I saw that, you know, what about that? Well, Jesus did promise us our best life, but, but it may not be now. It may be in, in, the, in the life to come. That's the one I'm banking on. doesn't mean we don't get to enjoy abundant life now, but it may not look like we think it looks. So for now, he simply tells them not to fear, and he gives them the reason that this is happening. You know, sometimes it's nice to know the reason. Like, hey, you know, why is this happening? I'll tell you the reason. This time it's not great <laughs> that you may be tested. That's the reason. It's like, this is happening so that you may be tested. And I'm like, a test? I hate tests. I don't like tests. I stink at tests. And, and so that doesn't provide a whole lot of comfort. 
especially this test, because if it comes down to a test of like my ability to, to follow Jesus well and to do the right thing and all that, I don't do well at that, really. I'm a, I, I kind of fail at that. And I'm afraid this would be, I just want to cry uncle and say, uh, you know, let me out. I'm done. You know, let me, let me out, please. Why would God want to test us or why would he allow us to be tested? You know, if we change that phrase from that you may be tested to that you may be proven, which the Greek word allows for, it kind of changes the way we think about that. You're going through this that you might be proven. Well, that, that, that I like. In fact, when we think about Jesus, he was tested in the wilderness by Satan. Think about Abraham. He was put to the test with Isaac, and it proved who they were. It proved the reality of who they were. We're even told this to do, ourself, to do this to ourselves, by the way. If you remember 2 Corinthians 13, where it says, examine yourselves, that's that word. Test. Put yourself to the test, it says. Why? Because you'll find out if Jesus Christ is in you. That's an important thing to know, people. You know, think about how many people call themselves Christians, but the first sign of bad weather, they're out. What does that tell us? Think about the parable of the seed and the sowers, all those seeds that were thrown down in the ground. Only one materialized into something that saves. We need to know this. We need to understand where we stand. These guys were about to be thrown into prison. They may have even lost their lives because of it, and they would not deny Christ. <laughs> I mean, think about that. They wouldn't deny Christ, even if it meant prison and death. Do you think their faith was real? Do you think it was proven to them and to everybody else? Yes. And I want you to, don't miss this. The reason that we pass the test is because Christ is in us. And that's the only reason we pass the test. If it wasn't for Christ in me, I wouldn't pass. But because Christ is in me, I will pass. And we need to know that. We would, you know, that's the value of sufferings and trials. They have, they have that important purpose in our life. They grow our faith. They purify the church, they sanctify us into the image of Christ, and they display the reality of Christ to us and to the watching world. Ironically, Satan is placing these weights on the chest of the Christian to try to, try to drive them away from Jesus, to try to get them to deny Jesus, but it's actually going to have the opposite effect. It's going to bind them closer to Jesus cause their faith to be fully realized. It's going to push us closer to Jesus. And I love that. It's like, you're going to try to crush me? You can't crush me because you can't crush Christ in me. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, Satan, but he crushed you. Your head was under his foot, and that's the reality that I live in because of Christ. And not only that, but when we cry out to Jesus and turn to him in faith, he begins to remove these weights from our chest. The first way he does this is by letting us know that there's a purpose in them. We just talked about that, that there's a purpose. But the second way is for us to know there's a time limit. I, I like that. I need to know that. And, and so if you, if you see in verse 10 there, it says, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Okay, now there's, there's much discussion about what this 10 days means. Uh, it isn't really completely clear. This is another one where you guys can go and study this out and have fun because there's lots of ideas. The main ones are this. 
that it could just be a literal 10-day period that was for these Christians in this church. It would have meant something to them right then and there and given them the hope they needed. There's a good chance that it was that. But we know that the persecution continued on and actually even ramped up, so it didn't go away. It's also possible that these 10 years are, or 10 days are symbolic of 10 years, which could refer to the great persecution that happened under Diocletian. That was 303 to 313, 10 years. And then Constantine came in and kind of put it all, you know, put a stop to it all. Could mean that. There's another view that the 10 days refers to the, refers to the 10 emperors from Nero to Diocletian. That works. You know what? God's word is so amazing. Maybe it's all of the above to some degree. And that's kind of cool to think about too. Maybe it had a meaning for somebody in the church right there that day. They heard 10 days and they went, thank you. And it was 10 days. And maybe it was these other things too. The point is this, regardless of where you land on the 10 days, Jesus wants us to know that these things are brief in comparison to eternity. That's the main point he wants to get across to us. What's 10 days in light of eternity with God? It kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I mean, think about everything the Apostle Paul went through. This guy had it bad. Uh, you know, I've never been stoned to death. I've never been shipwrecked. I think of all the things Paul went through. And what did he say about these things? What did he call them? Oh, those, those trials? Oh, those are just light and momentary, you know, pfft. Light and momentary things. It's like, Paul, I don't think those words mean what you think they mean. It's like, those aren't, there's nothing about what you went through that I would call light and momentary. But compared to eternity, compared to the glory that is waiting for him, that's how he looked at him. He had a 10-day perspective. We need to have that as well. You know, I know that many of you have been through really hard things. Some of you are going through them even now. Things that you weren't sure that you would make it through or maybe still aren't sure. I can remember events like that in my life. I can remember times when I thought, there's no way that I'm going to get through this. There's no way this is going to pass. And then sometimes, literally within a few days, it had all turned around. Now, sometimes it's longer than that. But, I, you know, those things are now, it's almost like, you know, when you're driving in your car, speeding along down the highway and something's in your rearview mirror, and then the further away you get, just the smaller, that's how it feels now. Those, those weren't that big a deal. In comparison to eternity, they're really not at all. Our trials are real and they're hard, but they are limited in measure and length by God, and He's using them for His good and for our, or for His, or for our good and His glory. Get that right? Not our glory, His glory. And that's why He can tell His followers, "Don't fear." Literally, it means stop fearing. He's saying, "Trust me, guys. I got you." Now you know it's one thing to say, "I know what you're going through." When you hear that, I know what you're going through. That's kind of comforting. But when you hear, I know what you're going through and I care deeply about you, that, that brings it up a little bit more. When you say, I know what you're going through, I care deeply and I have a plan to do something about it, that's comforting. And that's Jesus. You know, I, I always love that Jesus never makes us go through things that he wasn't willing to go through himself. That says so much about our Savior. And I think about this, these, Jesus knows firsthand what these weights felt like because they were also on him. He knew what it was like to be poor. He knew what it was like to be slandered. He knew what it was like to be thrown in prison. And he knew what it was like to be put to death. And he kicked every one of their butts, which I really like. 
Every one of those things he just took care of. That gives me great hope because that means that when those weights are on me, I know he can take care of those also. I know what you're going through. I care, and I'm going to do something about it. That's what Jesus is telling us. You know, he acknowledges these hardships the church is going through, but then he tries to reorient their perspective to an eternal perspective, to a heavenly perspective. We need to do this. If we don't do this, it messes us up pretty badly. Um, There's a temporal, earthly reality, and there's a heavenly reality. And we need to get those things straight. We need to make sure that we're looking at our lives through the right lens. You guys ever played with binoculars before? I remember when I was a kid, we had this huge set of binoculars at at the cabin that we went to in McCall. And if you got them the right way, you know, the mountain all the way across the lake looked like it was right here. And we do that with our problems sometimes. We, We just get them right there in front of our face so we can't see anything else. Well, that would be a time when you need to flip those around and get that mountain far, far away from you. And the same thing is true with heaven. We do this thing where we look through and heaven's so far away, we can't flip those things around, guys. Get it to where it's right there. That's the perspective we need to have. So I want you to think about these weights again, and and let's look more closely at them. The enemy is placing them on our chest to, to hope that he will defeat us and that he will crush us. But then watch how Jesus basically sets us free, takes that weight off and sets us free. So the first weight Satan used on them was the weight of poverty. Look at what Jesus says. He removes that weight by revealing that they are, in fact, rich. See how he said that there? Jesus measures wealth differently than we do. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's Jesus' economy. Very different. You know, it's... It's interesting that he has, there's two letters in here. One is written to the Laodiceans. They thought they were rich. And Jesus said, no, now you guys are dirt poor. And then you've got this letter written to Smyrna. They were poor. And Jesus said, no, actually, you're rich. You're filthy rich. How is that possible? Tim Keller one time said this, and I'd I love this quote. You don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And that's, that's, that, that describes this church. That's why they were rich. They didn't have any of these distractions. They had Jesus, and they were so rich. And this can be hard for us to understand, especially because there's this prosperity gospel that we hate, but it's seeped into the church. It's gotten in, even in, you know, I, I see it, I hear it in, in discussions. I, I see that mindset even in, in, in our church at times. And it's the idea of this, that the Christian who pleases God will experience more, more worldly blessings. If I please God and I have faith, I'll have more money, I'll have more better health, I'll have more comfort, I'll have more ease. Well, let's just look at Smyrna for a second. We know that God was pleased with these Christians because he didn't reprimand them. He didn't tell them to repent of anything. So we also know that the premise behind the prosperity gospel is false. And and it could even be a tool Satan uses to pull you away from Jesus. You know, it's funny because he can use weight and he can use bait. Both are very effective ways to to pull you away. Prosperity gospel is, that's bait. That's a way to try to, to pull you away into idolatry, actually. So the world's riches 
are often the worst thing for the Christian because we can end up hitching our joy and our security to the wrong wagon. And you need to ask yourself, where does my security come from? Where does my satisfaction, what is it tied to and my joy? If it isn't Jesus, you're poor, you're bankrupt, you're destitute. But if it is Jesus, you possess everything, Christian. If you have Jesus, you literally have everything. You've won the lottery. (laughs) You're rich, just not in the way the world would define it. One could even argue that because this church was the poorest, they were the purest. That's a hard thing to realize sometimes because we have so much. Sometimes I feel like the rich young man. It's like go and sell everything you have and it's like, I don't want to do that. Sometimes the poorest makes you the purest. Okay, the second weight we see Satan using in this passage is the weight of slander. Jesus removes that weight by giving us a crown. I love this. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This city was famous for the crown of Smyrna, uh, which referred to this prominent hill that overlooked the city. At the top of this hill, there was this acropolis that was made up of, of the pagan temples, rich houses, all this kind of stuff on this hill, and it looked like the hill was wearing a crown. Interesting. So the the Christians would always see this crown that represented the affluent city. They also hosted Olympic Games. And what do you get when you win an Olympic game at this time? You get a laurel crown, one made out of, you know, it's, it's leaves and stuff, but it's a crown. So that everybody sees you, you walk around proudly, they know, oh, there's a winner. What do you think the Christians felt like in that town? <laughs> Not winners. They were the lowest of the low. They had nothing. And Jesus says, I've got a crown. I've got a crown for you. And when you're, when you're slanderers and when your persecutors see that crown on your head, they're going to know that you've won. They're going to know that you've been vindicated and redeemed. And one day, if we're Christians, we get to wear that crown. I don't know how long we'll wear it. We'll probably throw it at his feet right away because it's, it's all his anyway, right? But that's, that's encouraging to think about. The final weight we see Satan use is is the fear of pain and death. That's a real fear for most of us. Uh, Jesus removes that weight by telling us that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, to be sure, the first death is real, and it may hurt, but it's nothing in comparison to the second death. If you don't know what the second death is, Revelation 20 Verse 14 tells us, the second death is the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in to the lake of fire. Um, that's a pain that doesn't end. That's a, that's a death that we need to be very concerned about. If today you don't know Jesus, you don't know if your name is written in the book of life, don't leave here today without placing your trust fully in him. He came and lived a life you couldn't live he came and died a death that you deserved. He substituted for you. He died on the cross, was buried, and was rose again, and rose again from the dead. If you place your faith in that, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you can be saved today. Well, a fitting way to, to end this study is, um, and this, this letter is to talk about a famous Christian who understood fully what Jesus wrote to this church. Um, most of you have probably heard of Polycarp. It's one of those names when you hear you don't forget because it's such a funny sounding name. Uh, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John and, and he ended up being a pastor in this church of Smyrna. His name means fruitful. 
Who knew? Polycarp, fruitful, much fruit. And, and uh, he definitely was that. The story of what happened to Polycarp is well documented. There's no doubt that this letter from Jesus helped him and encouraged him and prepared him for what was to come. One day Polycarp had this vision as he was lying on his pillow uh, that his pillow burst into flames. <laughs> that's, a bad, that's a bad vision. He knew what it meant. And he told his fellow Christians that God was letting him know that he was going to be burned at the stake. And that was a common way to kill Christians at that point. That, there was that, and then there was the lions, and the, they would go to the arena, and like, almost like they were watching the Super Bowl. They would, they would, for sport, watch Christians die. A day came when a warrant was issued for Polycarp's arrest, and so the authorities went to the house where he was staying to arrest him. But when they arrived, they were embarrassed to, to find out that this was just this old dude in his 80s, old, frail man, that they're supposed to come and arrest. And they're thinking, what, what are we doing here? What, this, this is ridiculous. And then Polycarp didn't make it any easier for them because when they got there, he, he had a really nice meal prepared for them. He said, sit down and enjoy some food, guys. <laughs> These are the guys that are coming to arrest him. And he just asked, hey, would it be okay if I had an hour to just go and pray, prepare myself? And they granted him that. Well, you can see that their, their hearts were already, you know, kind of for him. And so on the, on the way to the, the city, the government officials tried to persuade Polycarp, hey, just take a pinch of incense, just a pinch of it, and... and Throw it on the altar to Caesar and simply say, Caesar is Lord, and all this goes away. That's all he had to do. Be off the hook. Guess what he did? <laughs> Not that. No, he refused to do it. They said, you can escape all of these dreadful penalties that are coming to you. He said, no, I won't do that. When they brought him to the arena, they pleaded with him again. The pro-council pleaded, curse Christ and I will release you. And this is what he said. 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul finally gave up and announced his crime to the crowd. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. The crowd shouted, let the lions loose. But the animals had already been put away. And so then they demanded that Polycarp be burned. The old man then remembered the dream. <laughs> Sorry, just gets me every time. Remember the dream about the burning pillow, and he took courage in God. <laughs> Sometimes, if you get a vision, it's meant to might freak you out then, but meant a lot to him now. He said to his executioners, uh, "It is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season, and after a while is quenched." He's trying to compare what he's going to go through to what they're going to go through. Why do you delay? Come, do your will. So they arranged a great pile of wood. Normally they would stake you to that pole, but with Polycarp he said, there's no need. I won't go anywhere. So they tied his hands to the, to the pole, and he prayed aloud to God. This is what his prayer was. I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs, in the cup of your Christ. Among these may I today be welcomed before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. It's a good prayer. <laughs> they set the wood ablaze, and then something weird happened. The, the flames shot up, but it was almost like the wind had filled sails, and, and it, it just kind of went around him. <laughs> a lot of flame all the way up, but it didn't touch him. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just a beautiful picture of what God is saving us from? Mm. Well, 
the executioner, that made him mad. <laughs> so he took a long spear and, and he ran Polycarp through. And immediately, guess what Polycarp saw? The face of his Lord. And he was given a crown of life. You know, we may never be called to live a martyr's, uh, or to die a martyr's death, but we are called to live a martyr's life. Jesus said, take up your cross daily. Come and die so that I may live. That's what we're called to do as Christians. You know, I think most of us would say we want a deeper walk with the Lord. We want our life to count for more. (laughs) But, But often we don't want the cost that might go along with that of dying to self. Ah, there's so much we can learn from a church like this. It's funny how many churches in the world think that the American church is the one to emulate. Nah, this is the church to emulate. Yeah. Father, we just thank you so much that you've given us these letters and they're so inspiring to us even now. Father, purify your church. Uh, we don't know what's to come. We pray that you would prepare us by your spirit and that you would use us mightily uh, in this community. Help us, Father, to love each other, to encourage each other in this room and to love those on the outside of this, these walls, Lord, that don't know you yet, that they might meet you. Use us, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.